that God would do. And, and Advent season is um, a re, sort of a reminder of that. It sort of partakes of, of that ancient waiting and that ancient time of preparing and, and seeing what God would do. And, and so that's what we're doing now as well. You know, when, when um, the ancient Israel was waiting for the Messiah to come, they knew some things to expect. Some things had been prophesied. Now, they didn't always get those prophecies right and understand the fulfillment of them, but there's also a lot because of that, a lot that's associated when Jesus came into the world that was really unexpected um, by all of them. And one of the things that nobody expected was the family that Jesus came from. Now, on one hand, if you're a Jewish person, you're paying attention, you knew that Jesus was going to, the Messiah, rather, was going to come from the lineage of David. But we get that lineage laid out for us in the, in the Gospels, and we see, we're going to look at the, the, actually the genealogy of Jesus today, and you see that there's a lot of things in his family that, that nobody would have thought that nobody would expect. And so we're going to explore that today, and we're going to, to see what we can learn from that today. I was thinking about this. My, my kids are adopted, and my son, who's older, <clears throat> he's in his mid-30s, and back in the day when, when we adopted him, the idea of open adoption was pretty rare, and it really wasn't really a thing back then. So he has really, he grew up with no idea much about his birth parents, his birth family. We know he was born in Logan here. We live in South Ogden. We don't know anything about why he was born here. His mom may have been a student. We just don't know any of that, and he grew up without any of that knowledge. But a couple years ago, somebody gave him for Christmas one of those DNA kits, like 23andMe or whatever that is. And so he, he did the work, he sent it in, and he, and he clicked the box and said, you know, I'm open to be contacted by others with similar DNA. And over time, over about three years, he came to discover that he has three half-sisters. They all grew up in Idaho. Two of them still live in Idaho, one of them back east. And so, wow, talk about an unexpected family. He had no idea that the, and he's gotten to know a couple of his sisters and and it's been, a, it's been a really good thing. Well, I thought that made me think of this passage because a lot of Jesus' family, as we look at the biography, or rather the, the genealogy, is really a surprise. But there's things we can learn from it. And so, because here, here's our, I want you to remember this main idea today, that all scripture is inspired by God and it's useful to teach. It's, that includes the genealogy of Jesus. There's a reason why this genealogy is in the Bible. The family tree has good news for us. Now, there's two places where the genealogy is listed. One is in Matthew chapter 1. The other one is in Luke chapter 3. And we're going to look, we're going to kind of refer to both a little bit, but I'm going to want you to look at Matthew chapter 1. Now, we're not going to read through it. You'll thank me, right, for not saying this leading name after name after name after name. We're not even going to put it all, Paul, on the screen. So I, I think we'd encourage you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we have a Bible that you can have. Um, just if you raise your hand, our ushers will bring one over to you. Um, we have them in the back. But look at your Bible app, a Bible that you brought with you. We're looking at Matthew chapter 1. Now, <clears throat> honestly, I can't remember in all my years of ministry if I've ever did a sermon from the genealogy of Jesus. And I don't know if you've maybe ever heard a sermon from the genealogy of Jesus. And yet, 
two of the four biographers of Jesus thought that this was important enough to include. They were led by the Holy Spirit to include this, and so it matters, and we're going to try to take a look at the genealogy, not necessarily pick apart every single word or every single name, but we're going to look at the overall thrust of it and look at some, some key names that we look at in there to try to draw forth some things that, that we're going to learn for ourselves today as we are in anticipation of celebration of the birth of our Messiah, our Savior. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. And then in verse 2, he starts with Abraham, and he brings it forward to Jesus. Okay, so now in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 3, he starts with Jesus and goes backwards, not just to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. Now, Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, they would have understood that it started with, with, with Adam. That would have been an assumption that his audience would have made. He started with Abraham on purpose because Abraham was the forefather of the Jewish nation. He was their spiritual and physical progenitor in a very real way in terms of their identity as the chosen people of God. And so Adam would have been understood. That's why in verse 1 he says he names specifically the two characters that would give Jesus credibility to be descended from, Abraham and David. We'll look a little bit more about the significance of that in just a moment. So as we take apart the genealogy a little bit, there's three things I want to share with you that come out of this reflection today. Number one is the ancestry line of Jesus actually shows us the storyline of the whole Bible. As you look through the ancestry of Jesus, it it really walks us through, in a way, the essential story of Scripture itself. Now, as you look at that and you, look, you, you kind of scan through Matthew 1, you see there's some familiar names you might have run across before. But I want to focus today on three couples that, <clears throat> three individuals. I say couples because these are three, three couples that God made a promise to each one of them, a promise that they would have a child. And that initial birth of that child became part of the lineage, part of the descent that God would ultimately bring this other child, this greater child, through. So three times, and in each one of those three promises, we see a greater unfolding of the good news story of redemption that God had in mind for his people. And so the first of those three is Adam and Eve. Now again, they're not mentioned in Matthew, they're mentioned in Luke, they're assumed in Matthew... But if you remember Adam and Eve, the first created human beings that God made in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 puts him in the garden, he makes Eve to come with Adam. Genesis chapter 3 is where Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They decided to go their way and think that they knew better than God and rather than going his way. And when they sinned against God's provision, against his, his, his protection, then sin and darkness fell into the whole world. It plunged the whole human race after them into this cosmic catastrophe of sin. 
But immediately on the heels of that choice, their choice to rebel, immediately God starts in motion his plan of grace. God meets them with grace. And yes, there was judgment because they had violated God's provision. But God meets them with grace and the the plan of salvation begins right then and there in Genesis chapter 3. And so God speaks to the serpent who represents Satan. God speaks to the serpent. He says, and I will cause hostility between you snake and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel speaking on a couple of different levels there but what what's important there is is that god says look there's going to be something that happens as a, as a result of this he says he says yes serpent you're gonna strike this this child's heel but he'll strike your head now, Eve didn't have any children at that time. They came later. But what's interesting is that then this promise begins this process of waiting. And, and the people didn't wait just nine months for this offspring to be born, but waited several centuries. Because in retrospect, we see the whole theme of the scripture together. We know that this offspring that he's speaking of is Jesus. This promise to Adam and Eve, you're going to have offspring, and it's going to lead to the coming of this Savior, this Messiah. And on the cross, Satan dealt Jesus a great deal of pain and anguish, humiliation. But in that very same place on the cross, Jesus dealt Satan a head-crushing, life-taking blow. Satan... was judged and dealt with, and he, and he is now a defeated enemy. And so here's the, the story begins right at the very beginning, the, the story of redemption right on the heels of the, of the first sin. God starts the story into motion, and he does so with the promise of an offspring, a promise of a birth. And then the second big promise that takes a big turn when God makes a promise to Abraham and Sarah. <clears throat> you see them mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. So God chose Abraham out of the blue, and he said, I want you to leave your home and take your family and everything you own and travel to this new land that I'm going to give you, and in this new land, I'm going to bless you. He outlined a lot of areas of blessing, and one of them in Genesis chapter 12, here's where where that comes up. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. You'll be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. He says, Abraham, you have no idea what I have in store for you. And it goes far beyond, far beyond your own life. He says, he says <clears throat> later on, he says that, that he's going to make uh, not just a great nation, but he specifies, I'm going to give you so many descendants that you can't even count them. They can't, they're innumerable descendants like the sands of the sea. And then in Genesis chapter 22, he unfolds it even further. He says, through your descendants, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Through your seed, literally, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And God gave them a son, Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac. Through Isaac became the child of the promise. And through that promise, then, the the nation of Israel was birthed. And through the nation of Israel, the Messiah came into the world. The one one who would be born to fulfill this promise 
through whom all peoples of the earth would be blessed. That person is Jesus. So there's a promise of a child that leads forward to a greater child as a big turning point in the whole story of redemption. And then there's the third promise that God makes of a son that foreshadows this future son, and that's to David and Bathsheba. And they're mentioned in verse 6. David is. Now David was chosen by God to be the king of Israel, and his kingship over Israel was a reflection It was designed to be a reflection of God's kingship over his people, the physical representation of that. And the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. Now, he blew it. We're going to see that later. But he had a hunger for God. He was humble. He He was willing to be corrected by God and wanted a relationship with God. And so at one point in time, once David was settled in his kingdom, God gave him this promise. In 2 Samuel 7, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. There's that promise, an offspring again, right? And he says, this offspring will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When God says, I'm going to raise up an offspring for you, well, first of all, it's pretty clear he's thinking about Solomon, who is the son of David and Bathsheba. The Solomon was the one who would be the next king on the throne, and he was the one who built a house, as you see there, uh, built a house for God's name. He built the temple, and that's what he's famous for. But the very next verse really doesn't apply to Solomon, where, where God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That didn't happen for Solomon. So there's something greater that's going on here, something else that this is pointing forward to. There's an immediate fulfillment of the promise and a greater later fulfillment of the promise because in verse, 17, uh, verse 16, God says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Okay, so David's earthly kingdom was a picture, a forerunner of God's greater eternal kingdom And David's son, his descendant Solomon, who ruled the earthly kingdom, then became a picture or a forerunner of a greater king who would come and rule God's eternal kingdom forever. And that descendant of David is Jesus. Now, this, by the way, this is why the one reason why the genealogy is so important in the in the Gospel of Matthew. Like, I don't know about you, but this is like the page I turn. And just read on to get on with the story, right? But to the Jewish audience that Matthew was writing to, this is part of the story. This is a key part of the story because they knew the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And if Matthew could not demonstrate that and show it by showing each generation from Abraham, then from David down to Jesus, then the claims of Jesus to be this Messiah of Israel would not have credibility. So it's really important that this genealogy is here. But what I want you to see is that in this genealogy are embedded these rich nuggets of promise that point us to the birth of Jesus. And not just to the birth of Jesus, but also to his identity and to his significance. And so as we unravel the genealogy a little bit and and look at the pieces of it, we see that Jesus is the one who will crush Satan's head. Jesus is the one through whom all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is 
the one who will rule God's throne, God's kingdom forever and ever. And you know, when you start to add that up, that's, that's the basic storyline of the Bible. And it's unfolded for us in this family tree. So that's one, one way that the genealogy is an encouragement, a significance to us. Another lesson that we learn from the genealogy that's also a great encouragement to us, we learn that God invites sinners to be part of his story. God invites sinners to be part of his story. Now, I don't know your family history. Maybe you've got a little crazy back there. Have you done your... My, my sister's really into genealogy. She's done a lot of that. And she's found some, let's say, odd things in, in our family tree. Some things that, okay, well, I'm not going to really like run that one up the flagpole, right? We all probably have a little bit of that. You know, my son, when, when he did, did that DNA test and he found these, these three half-sisters... As he got to know them a little bit, he never had the opportunity to meet his birth father or his birth mother. Um, his, the, you know, the ones who had done the testing and connected with him were from the, you know, from the father. But as he got to know his, his sisters a little bit, they found, he found out more about his father. And he found out that there's three sisters, so there's four kids. There's him, he's the oldest, and then there's three others. There's the youngest girl is still um, like a senior in high school. She's 18. My son is 35. So his, his birth father was busy for a long period of time. And uh, her, her parents won't let her connect with the other siblings yet. They're still trying to protect her a little bit. But as he got to know these girls, and he found out that his birth father, that his, these four kids um, all come from four different mothers. So... His dad is, has four baby mamas out there somewhere. And, you know, there's just something about a guy who has four kids with four different women. And going like, well, you know, um, he's gone now. And I don't speak ill of him, but I'm not sure I want to invite him to Thanksgiving under the circumstances, right? But, but the point is that all of us have some kind of shady characters or some kind of embarrassing you know, issues back in our family tree somewhere. And I was thinking about this, thinking about the genealogy of Jesus and my assumption that maybe we would assume that, hey, that God would only use the very best people to bring the Holy One of Israel into the world, right? I was thinking, man, maybe God, I would kind of expect God to use the cream of the crop to establish the, this kind of genetic lineage of the human Jesus um, and, and, you know, because he's, he's special and he's unique. But then you look at the genealogy, you go, surprise. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of mess in the lives of these people. I don't even have time to go into all of it, but I'm going to just give you a, paint you a little bit of a picture of some of the characters that are in Jesus' lineage. Number one is Noah. He's mentioned in Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> Noah, in Genesis chapter 9, this is after... After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard. One day, he drank some wine that he had made, and he became drunk and lay naked inside the tent. So here's Noah, who like, gets out of control. He gets, he's, gets drunk, and he goes crazy, and he like, is an embarrassment to the whole family. This guy, God says, okay, this guy's in the lineage of Jesus. Then there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We mentioned Abraham before. He's, well, God really used him, called him, and so forth, used that family. But Abraham, he moved to this, 
he's moving to the, around the ancient world, and he goes to this country that he'd never been in before, and he didn't know anybody there, and he feared for his life, so he starts to take steps to protect himself. Here's what he did. So he gives this message, he gives these instructions to his wife, Sarah. He says, hey, honey, when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this is his wife, let's kill him, then we can have her. So please tell them you're my sister. Then they'll spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. No thought to how they might treat you. If they think you're my sister, they maybe think you're fair game. And so here's Abraham, this chosen one of God, and he told his wife to lie, and he put her in jeopardy of all kinds of risks to save his own neck. Okay, well, let's put him in the genealogy of Jesus. He sounds like a great guy, you know? And then his son Isaac, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree, because Isaac did the same thing. Abraham, Isaac did the same thing as Abraham, only in a different place. And so Genesis 26, the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebekah, and he thought, huh, I learned something from my dad. He said, she's my sister. He was afraid to say she's my wife. He thought they'll kill me to get her because she's so beautiful. Same thing, you know, he, he lies, cowardly lie to put her at risk to save his own skin. And then his son, he had two sons actually, Jacob and Esau. They're twins. Esau's the older one, so he's the, really the, the one who inherits the family, the power of the family, the family resources, and so forth, the number one son. Now, interestingly, God did not choose Esau to bring the lineage of the Messiah through. He chose the younger son, Jacob. Jacob was uh, a rat. He was a cheat, a conniver. He did everything he could to try to take the inheritance away from his older brother and get it for himself. So one day, Isaac is really old. He can't see. And so Jacob masquerades as his older brother to try to steal the blessing from his old man. Jacob replied, it's Esau. It's me, Esau, your firstborn son. I've done as you told me. Here's the wild game. Now set up and eat it so you can give me the blessing." So he comes in with this scheme to, to, to trick his dad into giving him the inheritance, into giving him the blessing of the firstborn, to rip off his older brother. And then there's David again. You know, he said David's a man after God's heart. The Bible calls him that. But he did some pretty shady stuff too. And, and the worst failure, the Bible is very honest, I think, with the failures of these people, which is really helpful to us, I think. But one day David... He sees this woman, Bathsheba, he doesn't even know her. He's up on the hill where the palace is, and he looks down, and he sees this beautiful woman, and he, and he, says, he says to somebody, hey, bring her here. So he sees her, he summons her, and then he sleeps with her. Now, I grew up, I grew up, when I grew up, that was called adultery. Now, today, I would look at it a little bit differently. I see David was guilty, I think, of rape. Because he had the power of the king, and this, this woman doesn't even know him. He brings her in, and what's she going to do? Well, she becomes pregnant, and not only does, does he practice all this, but to cover up the pregnancy, he has her husband killed. And we see that. Second Samuel, the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the general of the army, and gave it to Uriah. He's the husband to deliver. He's going to deliver his own uh, execution message. The letter instructed Joab, station him on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back. So that he'll be killed. 
as incredibly heinous as that action is. Maybe we tell this story so often, we, we lose the, the bite of that. And yet here he is. God says, okay, you get to be the forefather of Jesus. Verse 5, you have, I don't have a slide for it, but you see there's Rahab, who's listed in verse 5, is a prostitute. And Ruth is also listed there too. Both of Rahab and Ruth are not part of Israel. They're outsiders. They're Gentiles. And God says, okay, I'll use you to bring my Messiah into the world. Jesus never sinned, but his ancestors certainly did. They're human. They're human just like us. So they're, they're affected by the brokenness of the world. They're affected by the brokenness and the, and the sinfulness of the human heart, just like everybody else. And so the point is that God uses broken people, God uses faulty people to bring his purposes to pass in the world. That sin does not automatically disqualify you. Whatever you've done, it doesn't automatically disqualify you from being used by God. Now, of course, it has to be dealt with. David was repentant. And sin always has consequences. If we were to dig deeper into each of these stories and the other ones in the genealogy, we'd find out that the choices that those people made brought bad fruit into their lives and the lives of others. Sin always has consequences. It has eternal consequences as well against a holy God, a righteous God, the God of the universe. That's why sin, it has to be dealt with. And that's why Jesus was born. Jesus went to the cross to pay for Abraham's sin, to pay for David's sin, for Rahab, for all the others in his lineage, all of his ancestors, to pay for their sins and to pay for yours and mine also so that we can be part of God's story, so that we can be available for, us to, for God to use us as fallen and weak and frail and finite as we are. That's good news. But not only can we be part of God's story, the, the third thing I want you to see as we reflect on the genealogy is that we can actually become part of God's family as well. So people, who, people get to join the family because Jesus became a man. So <clears throat> again, I adopted my kids. So that means there was a time when they were not part of my family. There was a time when they had no relationship with me. They're not naturally related to me in any way. They don't share any DNA or any genetics with me whatsoever. But there was one day when they became my son and my daughter. Well, two days, actually. They were three years apart. But there was a time for each of them when they became my son and my daughter. Now, look, I... We didn't adopt them because they had any money or because they had these wonderful talents or skills or because of the accomplishments that they had made in the world or whatever. They were infants. They had nothing to offer except a lot of pain and trouble, right? So we just, it was our decision. We just said, we're going to bring them into our family. And that, that's kind of a picture of how God makes us his children. Invites us into his family. So let me 
let me explain how that works here and connect a couple dots for you. The first thing, to set the stage for you, I want you to think about who Jesus was before he was born in Bethlehem. Who was he before he was born in Bethlehem, before he entered the human race? John chapter 1, verse 1 explains that in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that seems confusing. What is the Word? Who is that? Is that a person? Is that a thing? Well, this word, the word, word, it talks, it's an abstract word that talks about the identity of God the Son before he became human. So it's Jesus before he was Jesus. See, he wasn't Jesus till he was born as a baby and then his parents named him. But he was God the Son. He was the second person of the Trinity from eternity past. He always existed before anything was created. He himself was not created, but was involved in creating all things. And the verse says two things about him. He says he was with God the Father, and he was God himself. Now, I don't, I don't know how you, what happens when you hear that. For me, I just go, wow. Like, what? He what? He was God before he entered this world? So, now, I, that's the first part of the, the chain I want you to think about. So, the next thing that we're going to see a little bit farther down in the passage in John chapter 1 is then what he did, what happened next, and how that affects us. So, look at John chapter 1 verses 12 through 14. Let me start with verse 14. In the middle there, so you can see, the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And so it says that this word, this pre-existent being, God the Son, that he became human, he wasn't ever human. He wasn't like a human who became God. He was like a God who became human. And he said he made his home among us. This is called the incarnation. which word, That word just means the enfleshment. The enfleshment of God. The incarnation of God. Where, where God took upon himself all of the limits of humanity. All of our limitations. So here's the God, the creator of the universe. Genesis 1, he spoke the the whole world into creation with just a word, with a a simple word. And now he's born as an infant who can't say a word. He created these animals that are all around him, the ox, and the powerful created things that he made. And now he's in this manger. He has no power at all. He can't even control the movements of his hands and his eyes. He accepted the limitations of humanity, but he never stopped being God either. He did not set aside his deity. Now, he didn't use it in all the ways that he could have. But verse 14 reminds us that he still was this person of unfailing love, this person of faithfulness, this person of glory. Only now he's manifesting those divine characteristics through his humanness. So, Let's connect the dots. This this amazing being, pre-existent God, becomes human, enters our world, accepts our limitations, is born as Jesus, grows up a human life, and he does all of that for us. Let's talk about how 
that affects each one of us? The answer is in verses 12 and 13. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or a plan, but a birth that comes from God. He says, everybody who accepts Jesus, who believes in him, gains the right to become a child of God. Everybody who turns to Jesus, who casts their trust in him, they put their faith in him, calls out to him, then has the right to have this whole new rebirth, to, re, to be reborn, not physically, but he's talking about a new kind of birth that comes from God that has a completely different effect. So nobody's, nobody is actually born a child of God. That happens at a certain point in time. Where, where now we experience... See, here's the thing. When you were born physically, you became the physical, children, the physical child of your earthly parents. When you're born spiritually, you become the, the spiritual child in this new birth of your Father in heaven. Not genetically, but spiritually. And that's why Jesus was born. He was born so that you could be born again. So here's what I want you to know this Christmas as we're anticipating the birth of Jesus again in our lives. And we're, in, we're in expectation of what God might do in our life, in our world during this season. This is what I want you to know, that God wants to bring unlikely people into his family, unlikely people like me and you and others that you know into his family as unexpected as that might sound. Think of the person that you would never expect to come to follow Christ. Is it possible that God might do the unexpected in your life? He wants to bring us into his family, and that doesn't happen by being born into the right family in this world. It doesn't happen because we're worthy. It doesn't happen because we joined the right church. It doesn't happen because of all the good works that we do. We become part of God's family by faith in Jesus, by accepting him. He joined this fallen human family so that we could join the family of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us, that you set this plan in motion long, long ago. And as a result, use these crazy, faulty people to bring the Savior into the world. At each turn, you promised what you're going to do, and you fulfilled what you promised so that we could be part of your story, so that we could be part of your family. So I pray, Father, that you would speak your hope, your encouragement to each one of us, your transforming word, your power in our lives, to each one of us, that we would... Grapple with what it means to be a son or a daughter of God and know that your invitation stands open to everyone to join your family. Yes, see it, sin has been dealt with. And as we own up to that and admit it and, and just, own, Father, as we confess to you all that's wrong in our life, we trust you to make it right. So meet us today. Meet us today at our point of need. God, speak to us today. We pray for Jesus' honor and for his glory. Amen.
Amen.